Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today, it's such a pleasure to welcome onto the show Mary Abdo, who is Managing Director at the Center for Evidence and Implementation. She's joining us today from Singapore. I'm here in London in the UK. Now, the Center for Evidence and Implementation has offices in Australia, Singapore, and the UK. And today, we are going to be talking about evidence-based philanthropy, which I think is a pretty cool topic. And many people talk about making decisions that are evidence-based when grant-making. So we're going to drill down in, into that a little bit and get some, uh, some insight on what the state of affairs is. Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence-powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they're able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at quilt.ai. Without further ado, Mary Abdo, Managing Director at the Center for Evidence and Implementation, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. It's really exciting to be here. It's a privilege and also moderately surreal given uh, how often I listen to the podcast to actually be joining. Uh, well, it's always great to have someone who listens to the podcast and now is a guest on the podcast. I think that's that's really great. Why don't we kick off by finding out a little bit about the Center for Evidence and Implementation? What's it all about? Great. So uh, CEI is a global not-for-profit advisory organization. So we are the Center for Evidence and Implementation. Uh, CEI was set up in Australia in 2016 and has really uh, ridden a wave of increased and increasing interest in evidence and implementation globally. So we uh, started in Australia about five and a half years ago and uh, have now expanded to Singapore, uh, which was in 2017, and into London in late 2019, which is growing like gangbusters. And CEI is a mission-driven organization. We are dedicated to and pursuing the mission of seeing the best evidence implemented in policy and practice to improve the lives of vulnerable people. And so we do that by working with governments, with foundations, with social sector agencies uh, to support them to use evidence well and to implement it in practice well. Great, great. How did you, who launched you, who founded you? How did, how did it all get started? So the organization was set up by uh, our founder, uh, Dr. Robin Milden. Uh, she's still our executive director. And uh, CEI got started really as an, as she says, as an idea over a cocktail that she was having with uh, Paul Ronalds, who's the chief executive officer at uh, Save the Children Australia. So CEI is actually a social enterprise subsidiary uh, of Save the Children. Got you. Great. Now you've been you're you're in Singapore right now. You don't sound like you might originally be from Singapore, 
give us a little bit of a flavor of your, your journey. I know the one thing I know is that you have a, a, degree, a master's in public policy from Harvard and, uh, and that you've been in some really interesting consulting firms before. Yes, yes. So I am. Um, so I, despite my, uh, my, my very uh, Angelino accent, I haven't lived in the US since 2007. So I've been living abroad. I'm kind of a perma expat. Um, I've lived in Singapore for the last five years. I was in Mumbai for the preceding five years uh, or thereabouts and in London for five years before that. So since uh, leaving the Harvard Kennedy School, I, I have not lived in the US. Um, although my accent has never really shifted, uh, so I still have this nice Los Angeles accent. Uh, both my parents worked for not-for-profit organizations when I was growing up. I, you know, I thought that's what you did when you grew up, and uh, that that everybody worked for mission-driven institutions. So I sort of uh, have been bathed in the waters of the social impact sector since I was um, since really as, as young as I can remember. And I've always been really interested in the question of how to make uh, social impact sector organizations, kind of broadly speaking, whether that's not-for-profits, foundations, or even folks working in the policy sector, how to make that work as effective as possible. Because given the scale of the challenges we face, this sector needs to be getting the most possible value uh, out of the work that it's doing. And so that question took me to Harvard. Uh, it took me uh, into think tanks and different kinds of, of organizations, and then took me for about a decade into work as a strategy consultant, uh, working mostly out of a base in Asia and looking mostly at uh, pol uh, policy and social impact sector um, work in education in emerging markets. I joined uh, CEI. 18 months ago to focus on the question of, uh, of really how to accelerate the use of evidence on what works to improve the lives of vulnerable people. And so a little bit more about CEI is, is we really attack that question in three ways. Um, first, we support organizations, uh, we support them to make sense of the evidence. So what actually does the best, the highest quality research evidence say about what works? A second, we work with them to trial, test, and evaluate approaches. So that might mean anything from a five-year randomized control trial to a formative evaluation in the early stages of a program. Could mean pilot evaluations. And we do a lot of work to um, make evaluation accessible and meaningful for organizations so they can really use it to inform their ongoing work. And finally, we work in an area uh, called implementation science, hence the implementation in our name. Implementation science is a little bit of a newer area for some of the organizations we work with. That makes sense because it's really only been uh, a science and a discipline that people have focused on for the last two, two and a half decades or so. And um, really, if we think about evidence-based and, and evidence-backed interventions as the what, Implementation science is the how. So it, if uh, so, backing up a little bit, if we all agree that using evidence well is is something that we should be doing more of, um, it's important to note that it takes on average about seventeen years for a research-based, evidence-informed model to make it its way into uh, routine practice, and. And that can, and also that might make it into routine practice, but in clinical settings, for example, this might mean as low as 14% fidelity to the original models. 
And so if we take a field like early childhood, that's saying that there are things we know today that could positively affect the, the life chances of young children that for three generations of children, so over that 17-year lifespan, won't actually get into practice. And so implementation science is all about shortening the gap between what we know and what we do by fitting interventions to context, by thinking deliberately about scaling up, by thinking about systems change as something that we can plan for and that is something that there are known strategies to uh, get things taken up. Why does it take so long? So you mentioned early childhood development and you're telling me, we, you know, we might be looking at 20 years from something to get from, from somebody's concept notes to actual deployment implementation. So there's a couple of, there's a couple of reasons. Um, so I think first, uh, first one of the things I talked, I talked first about how CEI works with organizations to help synthesize evidence. One of the issues is that research evidence until fairly recently, so until about the last 10 years, has been locked up mostly behind paywalls within academic institutions or journals. So this evidence is not accessible and it's often not communicated in a way that is accessible to normal human beings like like you and me, right? So it might be understandable by people who are really steeped in a discipline, but it's not accessible to, uh, to normal people. Um, and two is that implementation has not often been treated as real work that needs to be planned for and uh, deliberately taken on and for which there are known approaches uh, that can make it more successful. So traditional approaches in the past are often to uh, provide the intervention and to maybe provide some training. But we know that just providing the evidence that something works and providing the training isn't necessarily uh, going to lead to, to that being taken up. So a really good concrete example um, is the use of patient safety checklists in hospitals. So there are known intervention that helps healthcare workers consistently follow basic safety protocols to reduce infection rates. And uh, they help with memory recall, uh, they um, support in crisis situations and early studies found, so just in some Michigan hospitals that trialed this, they found that they, they, the infection rates decreased by, by 66% and they saved $150 million in costs. So you would imagine that just A, it, 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 makes, people, <laughs> it makes people less sick and it, and it saves you a lot of money should be enough to get something implemented in practice, but that's not the way that systems work. As we all know, people are busy, you know, everybody's got the KPIs that they're working to and throwing a new intervention into the mix, no matter how good it sounds on paper, is not necessarily something that people have the bandwidth to adopt. And so it's not just about giving them the right tool, like giving them the checklist. It's not just about kind of training them and informing them. It's also about coming up with the specific strategies for those contexts that will support the take up. Uh, so in the case of the uh, safety checklists in health, um, it's a great it's a great success story for implementation science because implementation science approaches helped identify strategies like designating implementation leads, performance monitoring, financial incentives, and technical assistance that actually help to drive that long-term uptake. The bit that you mentioned earlier, you mentioned earlier that um, traditionally a lot of the insight has been behind you know, has been published in academic journals, peer-reviewed journals, but not necessarily available to, to perhaps the a lay audience. What is it that can be done now to bring some of these things that you're talking about 
to a broader audience so that somebody who's within a philanthropic organization in some corner of the world and may not be inclined to be reading uh, uh, The Lancet or something, um, <laughs> how, how could they... Um, What's the option these days? How, how can we make sure that this information is being disseminated a little bit more uh, more broadly? So I guess I, I want to back up for a second and think about, like, why does it matter that we're evidence-informed? Why, why should we care about evidence? Because it all sounds great, but why, why should philanthropists even care about this? So I think it's important that we think about what is philanthropy's role, really? And it's recasting that role as not being one of gap filling or um, you know, trying to fill holes left by the public sector, but it's really about being the source of catalytic innovation and insight and building up the evidence base that can shape priorities within the public and private sectors as a whole. And so I think... Um, I, it might be useful to talk a little bit about what it would mean, like what does it mean to be evidence-informed in your philanthropy, both from a perspective of outlook and from a perspective of approach. In terms of outlook, that's, I would say that really starts with understanding what evidence is and why it's important. And so when we talk about evidence, I, I wanna make clear, I'm talking about the best quality research and scientific evidence, um, there are, of course, other kinds of evidence, uh, people's lived experience, expert opinion, case studies. But what we're talking about here is really good quality uh, research and scientific evidence. And if you think about a sector like healthcare, it would be a scandal if healthcare was not using the best science that you've got. But outside of healthcare, for some reason in education, services for kids, child welfare, vulnerable families, um, a lot of the time, evidence is hardly ever used, and we just use what sounds good. Uh, so the bar is pretty low in terms of how we typically use evidence in the social sector. And so we need to move away from kind of what sounds good, because using good evidence matters because it saves us time. It saves us money. It can create create greater impact because it means we can fund what works better. Um, it means we can improve the programs. And it also means that we are not throwing good money after bad because it's not just that programs might have no impact or they don't have the desired impact. It's also that there are interventions out there that actually can cause harm. And so it, as a philanthropist, we have you know, philanthropists have a uh, responsibility to ensure that what they're doing when they are uh, deploying funds is uh, not going to cause harm. So that's the first piece is understanding what evidence is and why it's important. The second piece is around just having, embracing a learning mindset and is kind of cheesy as that sounds and is kind of, um, it sounds like a bit of a buzzword, but I'd really encourage donors to think about not trying to get it right all the time um, you know, people are really worried about reputation and risk aversion is a really serious thing, but focusing, giving on learning and focusing on sharing what you learn. So there's a, a, a we spoke to some folks at Hewlett Foundation for a, a case study we were doing a while back. And someone there talked about the fact that the, the foundation has a bias toward sharing. And that kind of mentality within the philanthropic sector, I think, goes a long way in terms of helping everyone get to the insights faster, understand more quickly what is going to uh, have impact on the lives of the people that we're, we're really interested in, uh, in reaching. And the, the final area I'd encourage in terms of just a shift in outlook 
is around reframing innovation. And innovation is something that we all want to do. It sounds great. It's really fun to do the new innovative thing. But you know what would be really innovative is doing what works now. <laughs> and that's not often done. So uh, it's that that is just we would really strongly encourage uh, philanthropists to reframe what it means to be innovative and also to think about how they can use evidence to enhance those things that are the cutting edge of innovation. Yeah. Is there much by way of then sharing that that research so that not just the funder who put that research together, but it just becomes publicly available so that those gaps that you've identified become fruitful sources of potential funding from those externally who might be interested in getting involved in something that uh, that requires their involvement? So this is absolutely the right question to ask. And we would strongly encourage, strongly, strongly encourage everyone who is investing behind these research synthesis uh, activities to make that research publicly available. It's um, These are public goods because these synthesis approaches look at the all of the global available research evidence on these questions they are by their very nature something that is replicable uh, and but that also and is transparent in terms of how the research is collected but also that just needs to be refreshed every few years you don't need to redo the research once you have done this research it's done it's a public good that can be used by others so as a great example of this we worked uh in 2019 with the macquarie group foundation which is a um uh, foundation and uh, in Austra based in Australia, working globally and in their Australia programs, they were looking at the question of how to improve educational employment outcomes for young people. And so CEI worked with them and did a rapid evidence review. And uh, that has not only helped to inform the way that their board thinks about what kinds of interventions they should fund, it also helps them figure out what the gaps in the research are. And they've made that uh, review public. So if you Google this review, you can find it, read what they found, and benefit from that insight as well. So it's absolutely something that we'd encourage organizations to do. Mm -hmm. The research itself, the the methodology, the the frameworks, are you finding innovation and advancement on that in itself? And I guess the point I'm getting to is the way research monitoring and evaluation, uh, the, the way these things were done 20 years ago versus 10 years ago versus today versus five or 10 years from now, if you mention things like artificial intelligence, the power to manipulate data, uh, are there innovations? Are there things that you're seeing in the pipeline that say to you, um, the way research was done before isn't what it looks like today. And actually it's not, it's going to be radically different in five or 10 years from now. Oh, this is a great question. I, I think there's sort of two ends of the spectrum here that we can look at. One is the super crunchy methodological end, and the other is the uh, kind of practice end where I get into super simple, right? So the super crunchy methodology end is, yes, there are some really interesting innovations happening in research design. Um, I will leave that to my uh, nerdier colleagues to describe at length, but we've got some, some great uh, webinars available on our website uh, that go into this. So for example, one is um, the use of hybrid designs in evaluation, which look at both the effectiveness of an intervention and at its implementation at the same time and use that to feed into um, the program design on an ongoing basis. So hybrid designs are definitely uh, 
a, an area where we see a lot of promise and that we're starting to integrate into a lot of our own work. I think to your point, the availability of data, of good data uh, from and and the use of uh, of technology, uh, like, you know, as you referenced the Quilt AI folks and the, the use of artificial intelligence in uh, informing our uh, our understanding of social issues, I think is game changing, right? So all this is really exciting. And now I want to talk about the other end of the spectrum, which is sort of the way that we're seeing the sector evolve in terms of monitoring and evaluation. And I'd say there are two things that are going on there that, that are really exciting there. Uh, one, and one is about a simplification of the approach and monitoring and evaluation from the side of the funder, which is about thinking, you know, we are seeing a trend toward multi-year core operating support and about good grant craft being tied up in being uh, as low interventionist as possible. So being a good, you know, finding organizations you trust, backing them and not, uh, and creating as little burden as possible for them. And a great example of this is the Atlassian Foundation who we've been working with for about a year and a half. We supported them developing a new theory of change and monitoring and evaluation framework. Every decision that they make is through the filter of what is going to be the least burden possible on our grantees. And I think that that is a great approach for uh, funders to think about because it's not about, you know, doing good monitoring and evaluation is not about getting every possible data point, right? We had we had a conversation with one organization who said something I'll never forget, which was we ask only for what we need and we use everything we ask for. And I think that that is a fabulous approach uh, as a grant maker. So there's this one end of the spectrum, which is, you know, hyper crunchy, you know, all the cool new methods you can use. And there's the other end, which is like, keep it simple, only ask for what you need and just be as good uh, and responsible partner as you can to the grantees that you're working with. Um, and a second thought is we're seeing a lot uh, a lot more movement, not as, uh, I mean, I'm, I think I'm, I'm maybe uh, keener, on, I, I'm, I'm trying to push this in the market. I really want people to start doing this, but I, I think we're starting to see more evaluations of giving approaches themselves by funders, as in, is giving money in this way more effective than giving it in this way? And I think, I'd really like to see more uh, funding there and more innovation, because I think there is a lot to be learned about what is the most effective way to deploy uh, the money that you have. Are there any trends that you're beginning to discern? Uh, well, I, I am trying right now to be as evidence-driven as possible. I actually sent someone an email on this today. I think that we are starting to see a trend toward, as I, I was talking about, the, the, the just giving the money and doing that for general operating support. And that, that is actually a, we know that grantees prefer it. So we know that grantees would prefer to have uh, multi-year funding for general operating support, or, or let's say unrestricted funding. But I am really interested in knowing more about whether or not that is a proven way to achieve better outcomes. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. I don't know enough about the research evidence in this area. It's an area that I've, I've started looking at recently. So I did somebody, send somebody an email today on this very question of, do we know? It is fascinating. <laughs> it is fascinating. And I know a lot of the big, 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 big foundations out there are doing that. You know, they're yeah. getting into that and being very hands-off, uh, trust-based, and um, and big amounts for core, for core funding, you know, exactly like, you know, the operating... Uh, side of things and so forth. 
I'd be interested to hear what your uh, what your research uh, uh, what your research finds on that front. <laughs> I imagine there's loads of anecdotal evidence. Um, loads, and you should. I know you've got. Um, side note: You've got John Rendell on soon. He is a real evangelist for this, and is the guy. He's actually the guy I wrote to today to ask. So um, you should uh, pick his brain. He's he he will be uh, it's much better than I am on this topic. Excellent, excellent. One of the things I always want to find out is what are you really excited about right now that you're 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 working on and maybe uh, keeping you awake at night? So I am. So I, I mentioned uh, I'm based here in Singapore. I've been in Singapore for about five years, and I am really excited about what's happening in Asia in terms of the use of evidence, particularly the use of evidence by philanthropists. So um, there's a couple of reasons why this is exciting. So one is the scale of the issues. So Asia has most of the world's people uh, and also has a lot of uh, challenging and complex issues, whether that's stunting or out of school children uh, or educational attainment in some of the world's largest countries. Um, and then also I think there's just this really deep rooted history of philanthropic traditions in many of Asia's uh, most populous countries. And, but we're also seeing a new generation of donors within that context. So let's say it's a second or third generation within a family, there might be a family business that has a foundation attached. And that foundation would have had a long tradition of philanthropy, but possibly not a strategic philanthropy. And we're starting to see a real move uh, by these organizations toward embracing all that it means to do strategic philanthropy, including really using evidence well, because they are really interested in just the, this learning outlook that they have is sucking up everything they can about what works globally and applying it to the context here in Asia. So, and Singapore is right at the heart of this. It's right at the heart of what's going on. We've got some of the region's great uh, institutions that are working on these issues, but also Singapore has become a real hub for capital in the region. So last year, it's estimated that 230 family offices opened in Singapore. Uh, and these, I mean, it's immense growth. And that's in part because of geopolitical shifts in the region and also the family office growth globally. But Singapore is becoming this real hub for family offices. And those family offices, many of them will have philanthropists who are eager to give. And so looking at how uh, Asia, how Singapore can become a real hub for this is very exciting. And so just by, by way of one example, um, we, and this, you know, really exciting for us, we're a partner of in the establishment of a new center in Singapore called CHILD. Uh, it's the Center for Holistic Interventions for Learning and Development. It was, uh, it's at, this, at the National University of Singapore and was set up through an endowed grant from the Lien Foundation, which is one of the leading foundations here in Singapore and, uh, and indeed in the region. This is the first center of its kind in Southeast Asia. And uh, most centers that are started looking at early childhood are, are about new discoveries and conduct what we might call discovery research, but child is using that science of implementation I talked about to embed the best evidence that we can in policy and practice. So even working with the early childhood sector here to take what is cutting edge science and getting that embedded into practice in preschools here in Singapore to get um, get kids learning as, as much as, as they can, uh, as quickly as they can, because we know those, those early years are really important. So that's something that's really, really exciting for us. And I think is part of that story of Singapore emerging as this real hub for best practice. Uh, and so we're, we're excited to be a part of that. 
That's great. Key takeaway for our listeners, what's that one thing you'd love for them to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? So look, we've talked a lot about evidence. And as I, 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 I would say, it's, I think it can be really intimidating. That word can be really intimidating and off-putting, um, but it really should not be. It's about doing what works. And so everybody in philanthropy is worried about getting it right. I would focus more on learning and sharing and using evidence well is all about learning. So I would just leave your listeners with that, uh, that today. Excellent. Perfect. Mary, thank you very, very much for joining us today on the Do One Better podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. It was fun. It was indeed. And I wish you, uh, I wish you continued success with the work you're doing out there. It uh, sounds really interesting. Thank you so much. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for tuning in today. You've been listening to Mary Abdo, Managing Director of the Center for Evidence and Implementation. Thanks very much for tuning in. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already. And I look forward to catching up with you next week.